Hello everyone and welcome to CEO Journals. On today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking to Matthew Parry, the CEO and co-founder of The Good Crisp Company, which is a canister crisp that continues to compete with the likes of Pringles. Matt is from South Adelaide, where the last 10 years he was part of a company that launched health-focused brands in his state and around Australia. After helping launch hundreds of brands, Matt decided that it was time to do it for himself and that's where he came up with the idea of The Good Crisp Company. In January this year, Matt, his wife and his three young children packed their bags and relocated to Boulder, Colorado to focus on growing his company in America. This episode is packed full of value, where we discuss the power of branding and packaging, how to launch a product into a supermarket, how to separate yourself from the world's biggest brands, and so, so much more. I can't express enough how much value is packed into this discussion. So without further ado, let's dive straight into this episode. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. Today on the show, I have Matthew Parry, who is the CEO and founder of the Good Crisp Company. Matt, how are you doing today? Very well, thanks. Excellent. I'm super excited to delve into your story and what you've got to offer the listeners. But the way I'd like you to introduce yourself is just to give a 60-second introduction of who you are and what you do. Certainly. Uh, as you said, I'm Matt. I'm the CEO and co-founder of The Good Chris Company, which is a better-for-you canister chip. So uh, like some of the leading brands, like a Pringles is probably a well-known one, we sell a, a version similar to that, um, but that's gluten-free, no GMOs, natural ingredients. So all of the taste and, and none of the guilt, a product that, that mums and, and kids feel happy eating. Um, and we sell that. Uh, in a couple of countries around the world, the US, Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia, um, and I manage that business. Incredible. I can't wait to dive into more about that. You're actually the first food product-based business we've had on the show, so that's exciting as well. Different avenue. Yeah, oh, look, my, my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you very much. So I'd the way I like to start all my episodes is to throw it back with my guests and ask them about their time with school. So let's focus on a 15-year-old Matt. Were you someone that found school particularly hard or were you this person that was just a straight-A student and found it dead easy? I definitely didn't find it easy. I was certainly at that time in my life, sort of, what's the minimum I need to do to, to get by? And not, not that that was even necessarily a conscious decision. It's just a little bit how my natural brain works, sort of, which is, you know, more big picture, more sort of let's just, let, let's go, let's keep moving. So, you know, I figured, well, if I could get B's or C's and still get the same piece of paper as getting A's, why, why would I get A's? <laughs> and so... Um, I just sort of coasted through most of most of school. It wasn't really until I found what I wanted to do or, or a purpose or, or a reason to actually try, probably, um, that I started to then concentrate in the second half of, of high school as you have in Australia. So once I knew that I wanted to get into marketing and, and go to university and I needed to get a certain score, that then gave me something to work towards and I, I started trying a bit harder and, and got that score that I, I needed. But before that, in, in, in most of the school, it was about, you know, the social side of thing, mucking around with friends and, and just doing what I needed to do to, to get by. Not that 
<laughs> that is the right way to do these things, and I <laughs> certainly don't encourage my kids to do the same. Uh, but that, that's just what it, what I was like. So you mentioned going to university as well, because a lot of the guests I have on the show, they're these young entrepreneurs that have actually not gone to university or they've got started and dropped out. So is, did you complete university and go on to get a corporate job or was it something that you saw through and then, then went into your entrepreneurial journey? Or Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yep. So I went on to university, did a three-year marketing degree. Um, and that actually went on later on in life and, and did my MBA as well. So I actually enjoy learning. I enjoy that process. I appreciate absolutely that universities and education are getting a bit of a bad rap lately um, because they're not as practical and, and useful and, and they are very expensive. But for me, I enjoy that process. I enjoy learning. I enjoy challenging the status quo and, and understanding. So, um, yep, I went through university. I, I came out of uni and, and got a job. Uh, right into the um, CPG world, the consumer goods world, um, as a sales rep, and, and, um, and basically that's the job I had for for 13 years before I started my own company. So I had a fairly strong grounding in the industry that that I wanted to do. Um, I guess what was slightly different for me was I I really lucked out on the job that I got. So I landed into a small company in in Australia that um, was importing food and brand and selling it around Australia and because it was a, a small company they, they gave me a lot of responsibility I eventually ended up becoming one of a, a partner and shareholder but even before that you know that I was encouraged to treat it as my own company I was given lots of flexibility and so I've got a very strong entrepreneurial itch but I was able to, to scratch it with, within that organization and to some degree learn and, and, and play with with their money and, and not my own. And so I was able to have a really a good balance of, of both worlds where I felt like I was running my own business and I was, uh, you know, doing all of those things and creating new products and launching new products, but I didn't have to sort of leave and go out and do it on my own. So I was, I was definitely fortunate in that situation. That's super interesting that you've actually been able to go into that corporate job, but then you've still obviously been out, as you say, been able to itch that entrepreneurial mindset you actually have so have you always been entrepreneurial from a young age were you this kid that used to flip stuff on ebay go to car boot sales and find stuff and try and sell them on for more sell sweets and candy in the in the in the playground at school or yeah actually that's that's exactly what it i mean not that at the time you know i i thought about it as entrepreneurial that wasn't a word obviously i I'd learned till later and, and to some degree it's only sort of just started to become cool in the last few years. But it just was what I did and what, what interests me. And now looking back, yeah, I can label it and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was entrepreneurial. But at the time it was just what I was interested in. So, I mean, exactly to your point, I went to a school where we didn't have a canteen. They, they didn't have food there at my school. So, you know, I thought, well, here's a problem and, and I know a way to fix it. So I went out and bought you know, Coke and lollies and, and sweets and things like that from wholesalers and, and Costco and, and then went and sold it um, in, at, at the school out, out sort of the windows. And, and so started a, a school shop and was, was doing that. Um, I would take toys that I didn't like and buy, you know, sell it to other people or buy some toys of someone else and sell it to someone that I knew would pay more for. It. And just little things like, like that I was always interested in and always doing. So, um, yeah, it definitely has been a part of, of my upbringing. But didn't really identify it at the time as, as entrepreneurial. No, yeah, and as you say, then didn't. But then you've, as you've obviously progressed on, you've realised that that is a passion and a 
and an objective that you've had. So when was it that you actually decided to then go out on your own? So you've worked in this corporate job, did you say for 13, 10, 13 years? Yeah, that's right. Yep. And then, so when was it that you actually decided to go out on your own and why in, why did you decide to have your own brand of potato chips? Yeah. So that's a, a whole thing in, in itself. So, um, look, it got, it got to the point where, I mean, as I said, I, I had that sort of, I've always in, enjoyed that entrepreneurial side. And so I was in the back of my mind, wanted to have my own business, but the sort of, there wasn't the urgent need because I was, I was getting some of that anyway, but knew one day I would sort of do my own thing. Um, and so it sort of came about that, that I was thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm launching other people's brands. I'm bringing in other people's brands into Australia you know, I should really be doing my own brand and, and doing my own thing. And, and um, the idea for, for this product came up essentially um, because I, of my own personal circumstances, I was on quite a strict FODMAP diet, which restricts gluten and, and lots of other things. And so was was going off a lot of the snacks that I enjoyed. Pringles was, was one of those. And as well, I had two, at the time, two, two young uh, daughters as well so really looking into snacks and what we were giving them and and so I was really focusing on this healthy eating and and healthy alternatives so that was where mine was at so wanted to sort of create my own brand had this sort of life change or was going through a life change around snacks and then thirdly I was exploring the the US market um, and, and looking at trends and things there and, and noticed this this growing trend of better for you alternatives so taking existing products or existing forms or, or uh, trends that we'd all grown up with as kids and, and doing healthier versions and, and something that was more applicable uh, to the way people thought and ate these days rather than 20, 30 years ago. So putting all of that together, that's sort of how I came up with, with this idea that um, you know we should come up with a healthier version of, of a canister chip um, that would feel good giving, giving that I'd feel good eating and, and giving to my kids. Yeah. For sure. And, but what well, I'm interested in, did you find that there were any like specific barriers to entry in the industry that you struggled to overcome? Because the snack industry is extremely competitive and especially you mentioned Pringles. That's a, they're, they're a huge name. So how did you angle yourself to then compete with these brands? Yeah, so it is, it's a massive industry, um, but it, it has been one that I've been working in for, for as I said, 10, 13 years. So you know, it, it's it's everything that I knew, and and not as daunting as sort of someone maybe from the outside looking in and thinking, "Wow, how do I even start?" I mean, it, it was yeah. what I was doing day to day. I was um, extremely had a lot of um, understanding and, and inside knowledge of of that. And then when you look at sort of when I looked at the market, uh, yes, Pringles is a massive brand, and and we don't really compete directly against Pringles. They're doing their thing and they're charging ahead, and you know they're a billion dollar. Well, that's just in the US. They're a multi-billion-dollar brand around the world, um, but there, there is a white space that, that I feel that that they're not looking after, and, and that potentially is, is a growing space. And that's consumers that, um, as I say, are celiacs or, or want gluten-free foods. People that want foods that don't have high fructose syrup or um, fillers or GMO ingredients. People that that you know want to have the taste, but not necessarily the nasty ingredients. So that's an area that is a small brand we can fill in and we can dominate that small little segment. Um, and we don't necessarily have to compete head-on with with a big brand like like Pringles. Of course, and 
I'm it hits quite close to home as well because my, my all my cousins are they're celiac so whenever we go around there at christmas or we go around there for food it's all gluten free and a few years back there wasn't much when you ate when we had to eat these foods coming from someone that's not a celiac like i don't eat a gluten-free diet the foods tended to be quite bland and not much taste to them but the fact that now especially with like your company as well and all these new brands coming through there is they have got a hell of a lot better and i even find my mum buying gluten-free stuff now even because she's tried it there and she brings it home you can't really taste the difference anymore which so i I exactly and and Sorry, I mean, that, 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 that's exactly right. I mean, that's how we position ourselves is we're a brand that just happens to be gluten-free. We're not a gluten-free brand. Um, and, and, I mean, we're a potato chip. There shouldn't be gluten in a potato chip anyway. It's just that, um, you know, people put fillers or flowers or other cheaper sort of material in there and suddenly it, it, it isn't gluten-free anymore. And that's where the, you know, the food industry was going for a long time. And now I guess there's this sort of, counter movement towards it saying hey why are we putting all this stuff in so we don't necessarily have to change something to make this gluten free and and play around with the science of the product where it starts to get bland or weird or any of that we're just not putting all the extra stuff in and just pairing it back to what it what it should be and so you know we don't lose any taste we don't lose any texture we don't do anything like that to to make our our product gluten free And, and then a lot of brands are are realizing that and going to that so yeah it is a really good time to to be a celiac or to be on a gluten-free diet because as you say there's significantly more and better options than, than even five to ten years ago sure and obviously this paints a this paints a great introduction for your business but i wanted to actually dive into the fact that you're obviously accent love the australian accent you're obviously from australia but you don't live there anymore you started your business in australia and then you saw the potential in the US market and moved out there. Was that scary for you, leaving everything behind in your home country and moving to the US? It is, was, yes, um, as you could imagine. Um, I've got a wife and, and three daughters, um, you know, from three to, to nine years old. So a, a small young family. So that, that is daunting. Um, but you know, there's a bit of naivety there as well. I mean, even like starting a business, you know, the same thing, you sort of jump in and and you look back and think, wow, I can't believe I just did that. Or if you look back and think, if I knew now those things, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, And I think it's a little bit the same with with a move like this. But, you know, it's not like we were moving to the middle of China or something like that where we didn't know the language, we didn't know the customs, we didn't know any of those things. I mean, it's, it's similar to the UK. We... We all speak English. It's all relatively similar. Yes, Americans drive on the other side of the road and things like that, but nothing too much to, to get over. So from that perspective, it was it was an easier move than, than potentially it could have been. Um, I visited, you know, the US. I was flying there, you know, two, three, four times a year. So it was something I was I was familiar with. Probably the, the biggest challenge that we didn't really appreciate was the the isolation of that, so leaving behind all family, cousins, friends, you know, favourite restaurants, everything we'd sort of known growing up with and then dropping into somewhere where there's, there's absolutely none of that. Um, that's, that's probably been the, the biggest challenge is then rebuilding those connections um, with people and the support networks and all of that and, and um, you know, try, trying to rebuild that side once you've totally removed it. So 
but we weren't aware of that at the time is often the case so within sort of okay i think it was probably about four months of making the decision to move we, we had moved so it was quite a quick one for us and maybe to some degree that made it a bit easier so were you did you start this business on the side whilst you were working in your full-time job or did you sort of dive all head first straight out of your job uh, no, well, it was a, a combination of, of the both. And once again, I was, I was fortunate um, with the company that I was, I was working for. And, and as I said, I'd become a part owner of. We sort of worked on the, the brand and the, and the business together. And, and it almost became a, a sub-brand of, of the, the business I was working with. So I was able to sort of once again have a bit of a hybrid of, of both and um, launch it that way. And then eventually once it became big enough and, and we knew that there was an opportunity we then did separate the business and it became a standalone business on its own and, and we're now actually an American company and, and growing our business here in, in, in the US. So I was able to get a bit of a head start, a bit of a um, sort of a, an assistance there from the, the company rather than having to sort of step out all on its own. So, which is also, you know, it's something that's really handy in, in the snack business. You know, when you're starting out, it's a very expensive business have to buy a lot of inventory it's very expensive so it's not something I probably could have just bootstrapped a little bit or start small to some degree it would have taken you know maybe 10 years to get to where we are now um, so having the, the support of of and the investment from my previous company um, helped us sort of be able to grow and, and get a foothold in the in the Australia in the US and it's obviously done extremely well evidently through your numbers um was that was it quick off the mark so how did you for the, so for the listeners that don't know explain how you would get the product on the shelf in a supermarket yeah so um you would basically i mean you have to you have to do a lot of the work up front so it's not the sort of thing where you can get sort of you know minimum viable product and sort of go and and present it there's some degree of of that but it really needs to to sort of be a fair amount of work done so you have to develop the the product get all the you know work with the factory to get all the, the um, ingredients right and the taste right the packaging right get all that as much as you can you don't necessarily have to push the button to get it all going but it has to be a fairly um, substantially down the track products that, that the grocery store can can look at. So then there's two ways you can you can ring up the grocery store directly or, or try and get their details and try and get a meeting with the buyer. It happens sometimes, but it's it's pretty difficult um, because obviously they get a lot of people trying to contact them. So usually you'll have to go through either a merchandising company or a sales rep brokerage company. They're sort of called different things in different countries but essentially there are brokerages who you know they have all the contacts they know all the buyers they can get you a meeting with that buyer and, and help present your product and, and for that they take a, a percentage of everything that you sell ranges two to to eight percent depending on the type of company um but they'll take you in you can then present to the buyer and, and most grocery stores have you know, maybe one or two uh, look at new products each year. So for a snack category, they say, right, we're not going to look at snacks all throughout the year and every time someone brings me something new, I have to go and, and change my all my stores and, and relay them all and change all of that. So there's going to be one, maybe two dates 
in the year where we're going to get all the, the snack companies to come and to present all of their products. We'll then decide which ones are going to go in and then we'll change the store, you know, relay it, put all the new products in, take out the old ones. Right, and that will stay there for 12 months and then we'll do it again. So that's the other side of it. You might have the best products in the world, but if you've come after a review, it could be 12 months before you can even sort of present it to that grocery store again. So timing does play a big part, but you would go in, you would present, you'd give them all the financials, you'd show them how they're going to get the product, how much you think you can sell, how much you're going to support it as far as um, discounts. Obviously, when you go into a grocery store, you'll see there, Often there's a little ticket there that says, you know, 10% off, 20% off. That's actually funded by the brand owners, not by the store. So mm. they want to know how are you going to help fund the product and support it and all of those things. And then if they like it, they'll say, right, um, we're going to relay our stores on whatever, the 1st of December. We'll send you an order and, and get all the product in. So that's sort of how it goes. Never knew half of that. So if, obviously, I haven't. Yeah, I know, a bit of in-depth I bothers, but there's no, a lot to it. Yeah. Great. Um, so, how would you go about marketing your brand? Because obviously, you're not. So, you're, I'm guessing the majority of your revenue comes through supermarket sales. I've seen you on Amazon as well, um, but I assume the majority comes through the sales in the supermarket, right? Correct. Yep. So it's obviously much more difficult to build yourself a brand when your, when your product is on the shelf in a supermarket. Obviously, you can still do the normal forms of advertisement, but you can't necessarily, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, from my point of view, I can't see how you would, there's certain brands on you see on Facebook and Instagram that have the direct lead from social media straight to their website to click purchase. How would you go about getting someone to go into a supermarket and buy your product opposed to everything else. Yep. So the, the difference with supermarkets versus online, online you spend a fortune trying to get people to go to your site to buy it. You know, there's millions of websites out there. No one just one day randomly wakes up and thinks, I'm going to type the words thegoodchriscompany.com and, and see what happens. So I have to spend a fortune getting you to come to my site. The opposite is true of grocery stores, thankfully. That is, for no, I don't have to spend a cent to get thousands of people, you know, a day sometimes or a week walking down that aisle looking for snack products. Um, so already I've got a, an audience there of people that have come in ready to buy. They think, I want to buy a chip product. I'm going to come to that set and I'm going to look at it. So I don't have to spend the money getting people into stores or any of that. that that's, what the, that's what the grocery store's for. That, that's why we try and get in there. So that is the difference between, between the two. But where um, the challenge is, 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 yeah, once they come in, they're standing in front of that chip aisle. They're there for literally 10, 15 seconds. How do I get them to pick up my product? Um, and so that's why in CPG, in, in food, well, packaging is just so important. It really is the number one advertising that you can do um, to really convey your message, to stand out on shelves, to really resonate with your customers. So we spend a lot of time on, on packaging and we're about to just do another big refresh of all of our packaging and make sure that we're continuing to, to stand out and, and to be relevant because that's our biggest source of, of, that, um, of advertising to some degree with that. Um, so, you know, we do a lot of that. To be frank, you know, we, we don't do a lot of marketing. Um, 
just because we don't have the funds to do it, we're still relatively a small brand. We're still um, trying to sort of grow as we are through grocery and things like that. So we don't have big budgets. We have to rely on our product and that our product stands out, that it that does meet a need um, and and that it's, it's, it's winning. So often we spend a lot on in-store so you know grocery ends can, can we get extra displays how do we sort of just That's get our product mention, to stand yeah. out at grocery yeah is, is really the key focus when we talk about grocery stores so do you pay extra for an eye level product on a shelf for example opposed to being on the bottom shelf uh you can do it's not really something that's available to smaller brands like us these days um you know, and, and two markets are getting better at that. They, they say, well, look, everyone earns their spot versus sales. So to be frank, usually at these days, if you go into a grocery store, it's their own private label that tends to take up the, the middle yeah. shelf. But if you, if you sell well, if you hold your own, if you continue to show that we are bringing customers in, that we're buying, you'll get better position um, and brands that don't get sort of worse position. Now, there are the big, big, you know, the Unilevers and the Kellogg's of the world that, that do have a bit more pull there and, and can force um, stores to give them better positions. But generally, you, you are up to the mercy of a, of a grocery store. But part of, part of the job of me and our sales team is to, is to get the data and, and show stores why, why we deserve a better spot or, or why we deserve more facings or a bigger presence on the shelf. Um, so it's not all about money, but um, it definitely plays a big role. And I find, I find this all so interesting. So obviously I have, it's not something I've delved into before, so I'm learning so much. But where can you see your brand progressing then? Because obviously you say you're very new. You're, 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 you, would you still, cons- I'd say you'd probably still consider yourself in the startup phase. You've been going for four years, if I'm correct. But so do you plan to... Two, yeah, three, three years. Yeah, okay. Perfect. So do you plan to branch out into the broader snack industry and create other snacks or do you solely see yourself being in this niche of potato chips? For the short to medium term, I really think our future is in, in potato chips and particularly in, in canister potato chips. I think there's that much potential um, and that much market share to still be gained. We're, we're just scratching the surface. Um, we're in eight and a half thousand stores here in the US and that sounds like a lot, wow. but you know, as I say, it's, it's really just scratching the surface. Um, so we think there's a lot more growth there through stores. Um, we've got three flavours, so we, you know, we think we're bringing out another three flavours next year, and, and we think we can grow our range there through just different flavours and, and different excitement in the category and innovation. So I, I'm confident there's enough for us just to just to focus on what we do and do that really well um, to become leaders in in canister chips. Um, without needing to branch out into, you know, puffs or, you know, all yeah. other types of products. There's lots of other brands out there that do a really good job of that um, and, and they can continue to do that. But what, what does we uh, as a brand, what do we stand, what can we do, what can we stand for and what can we do really well um, and, and go narrow and deep on that? No, super interesting as well. So do you plan on coming to the UK? Because I know, I know my family, for example, would definitely buy your product being celiac. Uh, yeah, look, and the UK is, is a market we do continue to keep looking at. Um, probably similar to Australia, it is a very tough market. You've got a couple of, um, you know, big retailers that, that control so much market share. You know, your Tesco, your Asda, Sainsbury, they sort of, 
have so much food. And you've got you've got Whole Foods there, but it's from memory, maybe ten stores or something like that. Whilst Whole Foods here is five hundred stores, um, you know. So there's less of that sort of healthier niche stores that we can go in and gain a foothold and build from there. So um, you know, we will go to the UK definitely. It's just a matter of. Um, timing really and, and understanding the market and, and then having the funds to invest in that and to grow our brand in another country because that's not that's not cheap either. I mean, it's not a matter of just putting your product on shelf, you know, to your point of view, we do have to support it. We do have to have a lot of infrastructure there and, and some marketing funds and, and growing awareness. So it's not a small, <laughs> small expense to, no. to start a new country, but definitely the UK population-wise, I mean, you guys – are the number one eaters of potato crisps per capita. So there's definitely That's a market out. there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You've dropped some incredible value and I can't thank you enough. As I can't say again, it's all brand new information to me and I imagine for many of the listeners as well. But so the way I like to round off all my episodes is by asking three questions on three topics I don't think are spoken about enough and need to be spoken more about. These are money, relationships, and death. Sounds morbid, I know, for the last question of the day, but <laughs> it'll be fine and we'll get to it. So my first question in relation to money is, what does the word success mean to you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you sort of connected those two because normally we, we do money and, and success, but I don't think they are actually related to each other. Um, That's why I asked So, yeah, yeah. Um, Success specifically for me, and it's it's changed over the years, obviously, but now with a, a family and, and that, and, and all of the uncertainty that comes and continues to come with, with growing a, a business, for me at the moment, success looks like, you know, having a lot of that uncertainty removed. So, you know, knowing that I can provide for my family, knowing that, you know, we're secure and, and that they need I can provide the things that they need. Maybe not all the things they want, but the things they need and, and I can provide a good life for my family. That for me is what success looks like. As I say, that, that changes. But for me now where we're experiencing a lot of that uncertainty on a, on a daily basis, that's the thing that's really important to me and what I strive for. And I love that. And that feeds perfectly into my next question with regards to the relationships. So throughout your journey so far, have you found it difficult to maintain relationships with others, whether that's with your family, friends, your wife, kids? How have you found that you've managed to balance your time between not necessarily the quantity of time, but the quality of time you spend with your family and friends opposed to on your business itself? Yeah, it is difficult, definitely. And Whilst I probably find that, that I have more flexibility running a business as far as being physically present, so, you know, if I need to leave in the afternoon and go and spend some time with my kids or whatever, I can do that. I have that, that flexibility, but I find mentally being present is more of a difficult one, especially when things are, are tough or, or you've got a lot on your mind. I might physically be there, but mentally yeah. I'm, I'm often not, and I'm checked out or I'm thinking about things or I'm going over them in my mind. Um, and so I'm not always present and in the moment. So that's for me, it is a struggle and I don't really have that sorted out and I work on it. But I think someone said to me the other day, just going back to that quality versus, you know, quality time, thing like that. It's actually to me, especially around children, and, I, and I'm a firm believer of this now, that, that quality time versus quantity time is actually a myth. 
kids don't want quality time. They want quantity. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if I've only got an hour to spend with the kids and I take them to Disneyland and all of these things and do all amazing things. They don't actually want that. They would rather have two hours of just sitting there being with them, colouring in a book and an hour worth of quality. Um, and that really shook up my mindset a fair bit because you, you do, you overcompensate with gifts and things like that because you feel bad, but kids don't actually want that. They want quantity versus quality. So that for me has been a shift that I'm actually working on more and saying, well, hey, I don't have to do all this fancy stuff. I just have to be there and present. And the more I can do that, the better father I'm going to be for my kids. I love that. Yeah, it's really, it's nice to hear as well, because obviously most of the people I talk to on this, on this show are very young. They don't actually have a family yet. So actually hearing that from a father is really nice to hear. So final question in relation to death is, are you afraid of dying? I'm afraid of dying from the sense that I don't want to die. (laughs) I think that would be very sad. I, I obviously... If I die, I've got no control after what happens next, but of the people that I leave behind and my family and things like that. So from that, that aspect, yeah, I'm afraid of dying because it's not, it's not that convenient, to be honest. <laughs> but um, outside of that, you know, no, no. Um, you, you do the best you can here and, and you go on. But it's I'm and maybe going back right around full circle to sort of what I was saying about, you know, my attitude to school and things and my big picture – if I can't control it, I don't worry about it. Um, and that's how I yes. feel about death. Oh, I can't control that. So why, why worry about it? That is, my, that is my attitude down to a T as well. So I can completely <laughs> resonate with that. Matt, you've dropped some incredible value. So I can't thank you enough again for your time. So for the listeners that want to follow up with you or have any questions about you and your business, where can they find you? Where can they contact you? Uh, yeah, w- welcome to welcome to chat to anybody. Um, and probably the most easiest way is, is through LinkedIn. I'm I'm on there, uh, Matthew Parry, P A R R Y. And yeah, happy happy to speak. Amazing. And for the listeners, I will link those in the show notes below, so you can just simply click and connect. Simple as that. Matt, any final words of wisdom for our listeners? No, not really. I'm not particularly, don't have any wise or have any words of wisdom, but, you know, essentially, you know, it, it's a bit cliche, but we always say, look, if, if you think you want to try something, just now's the time to do it. You know, jump in. We don't, like me, I'm not necessarily saying jump 100% in and leave everything behind. It took me 13 years of, of learning skills and, and customers and all those things before I went ahead and started my own business, but it was always with that in mind. And so if you've you've got that idea, start working on it um, and and see where it takes you. Amazing. Enjoy the process. Matt, once again, thank you for joining me on this episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible business owners and entrepreneurs every single week. So you can really help me out by smashing that subscribe button and by leaving me a five-star review over in the iTunes store. 
It literally takes two seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. Make sure you tune into the next episode where I'm going to be talking to another incredibly interesting guest. I'll be discussing their journey and providing tips to all your aspiring and current business owners. Have a lovely rest of your day and once again, thank you for tuning in to CEO Journals.